Hello everyone, this is Bina007. Welcome to Vassals of Kingsgrave's Agatha Christie Reread. This is episode 16. It's a mini pod, which means it's just me. And we're here to discuss Why Didn't They Ask Evans, aka the Boomerang Clue, published originally in 1934. It's rather strange to finish Murder on the Orient Express, which is one of Agatha Christie's most famously and tightly plotted Hercule Poirot novels, and find with her next novel, Agatha Christie going back to a style maybe we felt we might have left behind in the 1920s. And that is one of her more caper-style action-adventure novels. In this case, starring Frankie and Bobby. Lady Frankie, that is, an aristocratic, bright young thing. And Bobby Jones, the vicar's son. But the good news is that unlike some of those capers in the 1920s, we lose a lot of the more fantastical, hard-to-believe elements. <laughs> and a lot of the P.G. Woodhouse-esque capering. And actually, this is a pretty tightly plotted novel. I was pleasantly surprised at how sensible and not as outlandish it was. It was a really good read, actually. I was pleasantly surprised. So maybe maybe you'll give it a go if you want to have a book that isn't a Miss Marple or an Hercule Poirot. As normal today, I'm going to go through a little bit of the plot, a little bit of a publication history, how it fares to a modern reader and to modern ears and eyes, and then to the adaptations. And in the after end credits music, I'll just get into the plot and anything that has spoilers in it. Anyway, let's put this in context. As you know, one of the reasons I wanted to do this reread was to gain more of an understanding of Agatha Christie's work in the context of her life, but also use her life and work to understand the 20th century and changing social mores. So 1934, Agatha is 44, happily married to her second husband, and incredibly prolific. In this year, she published Why Didn't They Ask Evans? She also published a Mary Westmacott novel, so a novel that isn't a murder mystery or action-adventure under a different name, which we're not covering in this reread, and also a short story collection called The Listerdale Mystery, so really at the height of her powers and the, and the most prolific part of her output. We actually know how she came up with this book because she wrote about it in the introduction to another of her action adventures called The Passenger to Frankfurt, which wasn't published until 1970, so 36 years later. And she says, you know, as an idea of how she comes up with her books, quote, you go to tea with a friend. As you arrive, her brother closes a book he is reading, throws it aside and says, not bad, but why on earth didn't they ask Evans? So you decide immediately a book of yours shortly to be written will bear the title, why didn't they ask Evans? You don't know yet who Evans is going to be. Never mind. Evans will come in due course. The title is fixed. So this is very much a novel written backwards towards a title. In terms of characters, as I said, this is neither a Poirot nor a Marple. The two stars very much in the Tommy and Tuppence brand, very perky and smart, fun, young couple. Um, Robert Bobby Jones, fourth son of the vicar of Marchbolt. He's 28 years old. He lives at the vicarage. Um, he's been paid off of the Royal Navy because of his bad eyes. And he complains at a couple of points in the novel that it isn't easy to find a good job. Um, you know, we have to remember this is now the first inkling of the Great Depression seeping into Agatha Christie. 
And so he's doing lots of odd jobs. And finally, he decides he's going to go into business with his mate, Badger Beden. Badger Beden is, we're taken to understand, quite a well-to-do young man who's just been basically a bit hopeless and it always ends up in money trouble. But he now wants to run a used car garage in London, selling very dodgy, chopped together cars. But anyway, Bobby Jones is a good egg and has promised him he's going to go in with him. So that's what he's going to do. Um, Bobby Jones's sidekick is Lady Frances Frankie Derwent, daughter of the Earl of Marchington, and very much of a better social class, not better, higher, I should say. I don't mean to add a value judgment, but that is really what the novel is dripping in. And we'll get into that um, in the piece on how it holds up to modern eyes and ears. But the, the tragedy of the book, if there is one, is that Bobby's very conscious of the fact that he's just a sort of middle-class, respectable young man with not many prospects. And Frankie is this very pretty, very smart, very wealthy young aristocratic woman and that he would very much be setting himself as a social climber if he were to go for her. They obviously really get on and they play together as children. Obviously, when she was up at the castle, quote-unquote, the young um, vicar's kids would go up and play tennis with them. And it's only as they become older that the social status starts to bite so those are our hero and heroines and I think they're really um really wonderful characters I've often said that Agatha Christie writes phenomenal 20 year old women who are very much against the mode of their time right they're not damsels in distress they're pretty yes but they're also smart and resilient and plucky and up for adventure they often actually initiate proceedings it's her that wants to investigate the crime that occurs and they're very much women of action. So I applaud Agatha Christie for in many ways being far ahead of her time in her female characters. So what is the crime that they are investigating? So Bobby Jones is playing golf on the links, so on the coast in Wales. And apparently this would have been a big joke at the time because there was a famous golfer called Bobby Jones. So when the novel opens with Bobby Jones playing a bad shot, that would have been funny for the for the reader. Um, he slices his ball off the cliff, goes down, looks over the edge and realises there's a man who has, it looks like, fallen off the edge of the cliff onto the beach below. He scrambles down to the shore and realises that he hasn't got long to live. His golf partner is a doctor. The man's back is broken. He's not going to survive for long. But he does manage to utter the words, last dying words, why didn't they ask Evans? Which is not, you know, tell my mother I love her. It's sort of an odd phrase and it sticks with Bobby. He also discovers in the man's personal effects a picture of a young, very pretty woman um, who Bobby thinks might be a sweetheart or a sister. And so it would seem there's an inquest. Um, The aforementioned sister is identified from the photo because it has the photographer's studio's name on the back of it. And to the inquest comes apparently the dead man's sister and brother-in-law. And Bobby's rather disappointed at how coarse she looks and that, oh, gosh, she didn't age very well, did she? And so pretty much goes on with his day. However, a whole bunch of odd stuff starts happening. Bobby Jones suddenly realises that he forgot to tell the sister what the last words were, writes to her. Very soon afterwards, gets an offer for an amazingly well-paid job in Argentina, shades of Captain Hastings there. Um, doesn't take it up because he wants to honour his commitment to Badger Beden, much to his father, the vicar's great disgust. 
and then, having not been dispatched to Argentina, wakes up to find himself in a hospital because he's been drugged with morphia, with morphine, um, and has amazingly survived because of his iron constitution. It was a dose that should have um, totally put him out. So at that point, Frankie and Bobby get suspicious that someone's trying to get rid of him. They realise that maybe these final words might be significant, but how on earth to go about tracking why didn't they ask Evans? And the only way they can do this is that, well, the way they start to do this is that when Bobby was waiting with the dying then dead man on the beach for help to come, he realised he was running late to play the organ in church. And another gentleman, a stranger from the village called uh, Roger Bassington French, French with two Fs, um, comes onto the beach and says, look, I'll wait with the dead man, off you go. And because this name, Bassingdon French, spelt with two Fs, is so unusual, they decide, Bobby and Frankie, that they can try and at least track him down and figure out what he was doing in the middle of nowhere in Marchbolt. And as soon as you see that name, Bassingdon French, spelt so ridiculously in a classic P.G. Woodhouse sort of spoof of absurd aristocratic names. You know, England does, even to this day, have a tradition of names that sound completely normal but are spelt in really stupid ways to trip up the the honest working class person and point them out as an oik when they don't know how to pronounce the name properly. Um, So Agatha Christie is definitely sending this up and you just think, oh no, this isn't going to be one of her early 1920s novels where she tries to do P.G. Woodhouse and it's all capers and hijinks and nonsense, you know, secret at chimneys style, you know, books that I thought were quite fun, but really they're not very good, are they? And luckily, I mean, the name is used and the name that's comically sort of overspelled is used as a key clue. But this is quite a calm novel. And when it does refer to the bright young things and some of that PG Woodhouse Worcesterish nonsense, it's usually to send it up. And in the case of Frankie, it's often used to be something that she exploits. Like she's very aware that when she meets older people, they're going to have an expectation of her as a character in one of these novels, as a bright young thing who's just a silly airheaded flapper. And she exploits that. She exploits people underestimating her. She also exploits snobbery. So she knows that when she goes to the family solicitor, he'll be only too pleased to bow and scrape and answer all her questions because she is Lady Francis. And similarly with other people, she really leans on her aristocratic title to get her way and to be seen as trustworthy. So this is a film very much about the class system and class snobbery, um, but it's also critiquing it and it's showing how silly it is and how Frankie and Bobby are going to subvert it and come out on top. So in many ways, it's incredibly progressive. In terms of situating this novel in the context of its social times, the war still lingers on. You know, this is 1934, so we're you know, 16-ish years after the end of World War One, but it does linger on in the generation older than the characters. So that's an interesting change, right? So in the earlier novels in the 1920s, characters would have served in the war, whereas now it's more the parents. So um, there's a very touching, actually, passage where Bobby James describes his relationship with his father, the vicar, and evidently finds his, his father a bit of a fusspot and a bit of a warrior, but comments that, you know, he was very fond of him and he feels that the father never got over um, the war and probably suffers from anxiety because of what he saw there. So I think it's it's interesting to see the war still having ramifications, arguably more so than the Great Depression. But the Great Depression is also there because it is hard for 
Badger Beeden and, and, and Bobby Jones to find gainful employment. And there's a feeling that when you can't do that, you've got to go to quote unquote the colonies. So Roger Basington French is back from, I believe, Australia. And at some point at the end, Bobby is going to go and make his fortune in Kenya. So that is seen as a way of escaping the depression in Europe, um, which I think is kind of interesting. The other way in which this is very much of its time is its consciousness of of the of drug use, illicit drug use, and also drug addiction. I feel this preoccupation for Agatha Christie started in Peril at N House, which is full of cocaine addicts. Uh, Murder on the Orient Express, of course, there's a character who's very heavily self-medicating with drugs, very sadly. Um, and here we have morphine. Morphine is everywhere in this novel, including people who are abusing it and using it medically and using it to kill people. So this is a, a novel that is fused with drugs, maybe more so actually than Peril at End House. So very much something that she, uh, Agatha Christie was obviously very, thought was very topical. Um, a little bit like Downton Abbey, there is this feeling that the aristocrats are ca- uh, sort of land and asset rich, but cash poor. It's kind of interesting that when Lady Frankie buys the cars from Badger Beedon, he's shocked he's never seen an aristocrat pay for anything with cash, which is quite funny. And But as I said, it's not as hokey as Woodhouse. There's a lot of class commentary, but it's really understanding. It's understanding about what a barrier it can be, what a privilege a title can give, can give you. I think it's really amazing that Lady Frankie is self-aware and understands her privilege and exploits that for good. Um, the lawyer Sprague literally refers to her as a bright young thing. <laughs> Maybe that's very topical today with all the commentary on Nepo babies, but Frankie is certainly a very aware one and uses her Nepo baby power for good. The other thing that I thought was quite interesting is, is that one of the characters thinks he has cancer. And there's a lot of talk about, you know, whether the doctor would have told him that or misled him about it. It is interesting that up until very recently, including probably early in my lifetime, doctors didn't always talk openly about a diagnosis of cancer. And it was really a sort of secret hidden thing. You didn't really talk about dying of cancer. And there's lots of, um, you know, you can read lots of social history about husbands um, for whom the GP told them that the wife had cancer and they thought better not to tell her. Um, It's only going to worry her more. So I thought that was really interesting as a little bit of social history as well. And then finally, last but not least, there is a little mention of an ABC rail guide, which I think is the first time we've heard of an ABC railway guide being mentioned in Agatha Christie, obviously going to inspire a later novel. So that's all I want to say about the book, other than to say that it's very progressive on the issue of women and, and its treatment of class. This is the first novel in this Agatha Christie reread where there's no racism, no anti-Semitism and no sexism. Woohoo! <laughs> oh, how wonderful. How wonderful not to have to linger on any of that stuff. OK, so there are three adaptations of this novel that you can, well, can you watch them? The first one was a very lavish London weekend television movie that aired in 1980, starring Francesca Annis, who I love as Lady Frankie. Um, the wonderful Sir John Gielgud as Reverend Jones and Joan Hickson, who would go on to play uh, Mrs. Marple as Mrs. Rivington. So it's a real um, shame I couldn't find this. I searched high and low, including on YouTube, where you can often find full length versions of these old these old books. But unfortunately, I, I couldn't find it. But apparently this is very faithful to the plot and indeed the dialogue in the book. 
and it is apparently quite good so i would if you can get hold of it let me know where please just leave a comment on our discord server leave a comment on youtube please tell me where you found it i'd love to watch it the second version unfortunately it's one of those itv miss marple series and immediately you know something's wrong because miss marple isn't in the book so why is this part of a miss marple series it's part of the same one that I told you about with the Sitterford mystery, where they just take endless liberties with the book. It stars Julia McKenzie. Um, really, none of it is like the book at all. It's all set in the 1950s. The characters are completely omitted. The whole plotting is different. The motivation is different. Half the characters are called different things. It's. I did try and watch it sort of on its own terms, But I just found it completely sort of unbearable. And there's a bizarre, bizarre storyline where it's hinted that one of the characters was a comfort woman in World War II. And, oh, dear Lord, what are they doing? It's only noticeable. It's only notable, I think, for the fact that um, Samantha Bond, a.k.a. Miss Moneypenny, is in there. And also Rick Mayle plays Dr. Nicholson. So for all of you fans um, of Rick Mayle, he's in there. And a young Natalie Dormer. Our very own Game of Thrones star plays one of the characters too. So maybe that might be a reason to watch. But um, I found it pretty execrable, as all of that series, actually. It's just a horrible set of adaptations. But fear not, because Hugh Laurie is here to save us. The wonderful comedic genius Hugh Laurie, who played Prince George in Blackadder III, who starred as Bertie Worcester in the wonderful adaptation of Jeeves and Worcester, And then latterly as House, which I didn't really watch, but I think that's probably what most Americans know him for starring in. Um, Apparently a massive fan of this novel. Apparently he said on Stephen Colbert that his first boyhood crush was on Frankie. So he really loves the novel. He made a three-part miniseries in 2022, so just last year, funded by BritBox, which is this weird, I think it's partly ITV-backed, so it's BritBox in the USA. But in England, you can watch it on ITVX, the ITV uh, streaming service. Um, All filmed in Surrey and in Swansea, and it's got a great cast. Will Poulter as Bobby Jones, Lucy Boynton, absolutely fantastic as Frankie Derwent. Interestingly, because she's also in the Kenneth Branagh murder on the Orient Express that we uh, discussed last episode. Hugh Laurie himself is Dr. Nicholson. And then you have this wonderful little cameo where you've got Jim Broadbent, amazing actor, as Frankie's dad, and Dame Emma Thompson as Frankie's mum. So brilliant. And again, there's a Game of Thrones link because you've got Lord Varys, Conneth Hill as Dr. Thomas, with whom Bobby Jones is playing golf. It's incredibly faithful to the story and the plotting and the characters, which I love. When it's updated, it's updated in a way that's just so delicate. There's a little bit of colorblind casting in there. Badger Beedon becomes a young black man who's living in England who also met Bobby Jones serving in the Royal Navy and becomes very resourceful and really like a cool part of the plot. Um, it's, it's just a really wonderful adaptation and shows you what you can do if you truly respect the source material, the plotting and the characters that they're in. So... Um, Yeah, no, I I really, really think this is, never mind the best adaptation of this book. I think this is genuinely one of the best Agatha Christie adaptations. I really hope Hugh Laurie gets the funding to do more. Although it does sound like this was particularly a passion project. 
of his. Okay, so I think that's it. I'll get into the a little bit on the, the ending after the end credits music, but I would encourage you, I know the books that aren't Hercule Poirot and aren't Miss Marple tend to get a bit overlooked. And in fairness, some of the earlier action adventure novels are a bit silly and you've sort of got to read them and take them as they are. But this one I thought was really well done. And I'd really encourage you to give it a read if you are so inclined. If not, whatever you're reading, um, I hope you're enjoying it and stay tuned for some spoiler-filled stuff after the end credits music. Okay, folks, so we're back. Um, I think this does play fair. We often discuss in a spoiler-filled episode, does, does this novel play fair? I think it does because you get very early on the idea that the sister doesn't look anything like the photo at the inquest and you get the suddenness of the job offer. I do think in the miniseries, the 2022 Hugh Laurie miniseries, the explanation of why Bobby isn't killed by the morphia is better. In other words, that he vomits it up. I think the novel plays very fair on Roger Bassington French. Very early on, it's it's said that he calls himself the ne'er-do-well of the family we know that she has, Agatha Christie has a thing for actors being um, disreputable. And at the end, it's 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 no surprise that Badger Beaton knew Roger at uni, that he was a bad egg, he was passing off bad checks and he happened to be a good actor. We should immediately know that Evans is going to be a servant because we know from Downton Abbey that we refer to servants by their surnames. I do think it's quite funny, though, and quite of its time that the solution relies on knowing which servants are more seen or less seen in the household, which which little delicacy might um, be something that we in modern times would overlook. And I love the fact that it has a confession letter at the end. She does this quite a lot, um, most particularly and most recently with Lord Edgware Dies. I do like to see the character, the unmasked character of the murderer in that letter. So I do think it plays fair and I do think it's a pretty ingenious plot and all the things that you think of as being hokey and coincidental, like, oh my God, the servant was in the house of the vicar all along, makes sense because obviously that's why Carstairs went to that village. So actually the things that you might think are badly plotted are actually incredibly tightly plotted and I think it really plays fair and it's a, a good piece of Agatha Christie trickery. Okay, I think that's probably enough to say on that. It's quite a straightforward, well, it's not a straightforward plot to unravel, but I think it plays fair and there's not much more to say than that. I really hope you've read it and enjoyed it. And we will stay tuned. The next novel in the series is going to be a Hercule Poirot mystery called Three Act Tragedy. I cannot for the life of me remember what happens in this novel, so it's not going to be much of a reread. It's going to be more like an actual read. So stay tuned for another Poirot next time. Bye, everybody.